This is Graham Lynch for Commerce Day Live. Welcome to the show. This week, we're going to be hearing from Gladys Berejiklian, the Head of Enterprise and Business at Optus, who this week attended the Daily Telegraph's Bush Summit in Griffith in New South Wales to talk about all matters regional telecommunications. But first, Andy Penn, the CEO of Telstra, only for a few more days, after seven and a half years in the role. This week, he gave a major speech, his last, um, as the Telstra CEO of the National Press Club, in his capacity as the chair of the federal government's Industry Advisory Committee on Cybersecurity. Now, the occasion was the release of its annual report, um, the second um, that, that's been released. And uh, it was a long speech with a, a half-hour speech, in fact, over half an hour, with about 20 minutes of Q&A with the press gallery. But we've excerpted what I thought was one of the most interesting aspects of that speech, which, which is basically a look at the threat environment that's currently faced by Australian businesses and, and government. Um, he, he covered it for about 10 minutes. Let's hear what he had to say. At Telstra, we've been working around the clock to protect our networks, blocking unprecedented levels of malicious activity. In the last 12 months alone, we have blocked more than 1 billion malicious emails, 200 million scam calls. We're currently blocking more than 1,500 malicious SMS texts every minute. The bottom line is that at exactly the time that we've become more dependent than ever on doing things digitally, and that dynamic is only going to increase, the digital platforms and digital infrastructure on which we rely are at most risk. A risk from cyber threat, at risk from ability to access critical technologies where the supply chains have become a geopolitical dynamic, and at risk from bifurcating technology standards that will threaten the interoperability of technologies that today we just take for granted. I'm going to come back to some of these themes later, but let me start by taking you through the current cyber threat landscape. Over the last 12 months, the global cyber threat environment has intensified significantly. And make no mistake, Australia is an attractive and active target for malicious actors and cyber criminals. New technologies and the move to more time online has created more opportunities for cyber criminals to do us harm. It has also created an increase in the attack surface for them to target. The risks of attack on Australian networks from geopolitical tensions, whether directly or inadvertently, has also increased. And whether the threat of cyber attacks from state actors is real or not, it is the knock-on effects that represent significant risks for consumers as malicious actors and cyber criminals take advantage of the vulnerabilities exposed and exploited by state actors. These heightened cyber threats are playing out in a number of areas. For business, ransomware is a major and escalating issue. Most ransomware attacks involve malicious software being introduced into victim systems environment that encrypts target files, rendering them unusable until a ransom is paid. Unless the business has current offline backups, which can be restored quickly, and too many don't, the business operations are seriously compromised, and in some cases, the businesses are unable to trade at all. Ransomware gangs are also now using the double extortion technique where a copy of the business's data is exfiltrated and stolen first before it is encrypted. This means that even if the victim can restore the system's environment from a backup, they have the double jeopardy of crucial and sensitive data being published online on the dark web if a ransom isn't paid. 
It is estimated that about 80% of Australian businesses experienced a ransomware attack in 2021, up from 45% the year before. Globally in 2020, more than $18 billion was made in ransomware payments to malicious actors. It's big business, with the largest single ransomware payment ever being made of US dollars 40 million. And even where ransomware payments are made, it is estimated that only around a third of the data that was stolen is ever actually recovered. Not surprisingly, therefore, ransomware victims are not hard to find. In February 2020, logistics company Toll became the victim of the Mail 2 ransomware attack. The attack took many of Toll's core systems offline, forcing the company to resort to manual procedures and causing major delivery delays. Some, we some weeks later, and just after the company had managed to get back on its feet again, it was attacked. This time, the attackers also stole 200 gigabytes of data and started publishing it on the dark web in what I described earlier as the double, sorry, the double extortion technique. Toll did not ultimately pay the ransom, but its operations and its customers were severely affected and it extended to many of key supply chains that exist in the country. In May 2021, as we know, a ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, which carries almost half the fuel supplies to power the east coast of the United States, resulted in the company shutting down its systems. Starved of fuel, many US states declared a state of emergency. In July 2021, ransomware actors targeted a vulnerability in software used by IT solutions developer Kasaya. Many companies were affected, including the Swedish supermarket giant Co-op, which closed the whole of its 800-store network across the country. In May this year, the cybercriminals attacked the IT systems belonging to the Costa Rican government, threatening to overthrow the government if a ransom wasn't paid. The president declared a state of emergency, and a subsequent attack a month later shut down the health services across the country. Globally, without prevention, deterrence and response mechanisms in place, it is estimated that ransomware will cost victims more than 265 billion US dollars annually in the next 10 years. Another rapidly growing area of cyber risk is business email compromise, particularly an issue for small to medium-sized businesses. Business email compromise is when attackers use email to masquerade as legitimate business, sending messages designed to deceive recipients into sending money or goods to the attacker. Common examples include invoice fraud, impersonation and gift card scams, but ploys can take many forms. And as I mentioned earlier, Telstra has blocked more than 1 billion malicious email in the last 12 months alone. Although incidences are almost certainly underreported, it is believed that Australians lost more than $80 million to this type of attack in the 2021 financial Another growing area of concern is mobile malware. As mobile devices have become more powerful and sophisticated, people are using them for far more many activities. Personally, of the time that I spend on a computer, only 5% would be on my desktop. The other 95% is on a mobile device, either my phone or my iPad. We do business on our phones, we do our banking on our phones, we shop on our phones, we watch the news on our phones, and we connect with family and friends on our phones. Australia has one of the largest and highest incidences of smartphone penetration globally at almost 80%, 
including more than a third of all children between the age of 6 and 13. On average, Australians spend more than two and a half hours a day on their smartphones. This is creating a larger population of users and opportunities for cybercriminals to target and a corresponding increase in smartphone malware. The majority of mobile malware is used to steal usernames and passwords or to, for emails and bank accounts, but many forms today are equipped with invasive snooping capabilities to record audio and vi video and track locations and wipe user content. Many Australians have received scam text messages about missed calls, voicemails, deliveries and photo uploads carrying a malicious link that will download a Flubot malware if clicked. And the Flubot malware, of course, enables cyber criminals to steal banking and contact and personal information from an infected device. Another dynamic increasing in frequency is the exposure of vulnerabilities resident in software used ubiquitously around the world. I mentioned earlier that these vulnerabilities are often exposed by sophisticated state-based actors, but then they are exploited by cyber criminals. Australian networks have suffered collateral impacts from widespread espionage campaigns where various actors sought to rapidly and indiscriminately exploit newly published vulnerabilities, including in Microsoft Exchange and the Log4j script, amongst others. These campaigns are becoming increasingly regular part of the cybersecurity landscape. Timely patching of critical vulnerabilities and organisations configuring their networks and computers to minimise the impact of malicious software spreading throughout the network remain effective in protecting yourself. As well as the caution, though, of running your day-to-day -day business, organisations also need to be thoughtful and careful when conducting M&A activities. At Telstra, we have seen somewhat of this firsthand. In 2015, we acquired PacNet, which has extensive network infrastructure in the Asia-Pacific region, including extensive submarine cables, which are crucial for transmitting sensitive and significant data internationally. We had done due diligence on the company six months before we completed the acquisition. However, you do not usually get to get direct access to the company's network or systems when you're doing due diligence, and therefore you tend to have to rely on the representations and the warranties of the vendor. So, not surprisingly, the day after we took over PacNet, our cyber team went in and did a very deep end-to-end -end scan and, sure enough, identified multiple incidences of malware resident in its systems. We've also just completed the acquisition of Digicel in partnership with the Australian Government. Digicel is the largest leading operator in six countries in the Pacific region for mobile telecommunications, including in Papua New Guinea. And yes, we identified multiple incidences of malware resident in its systems. So that's Andy Penn, the CEO of Telstra, giving a pretty good wrap up, as good as you'll get from anyone, of the threat environment faced online by Australian businesses and, and organisations. Now, later on, um, during the Q&A session at his National Press Club appearance, he was asked a question by a journalist, basically, what can Australia do to get more sovereign capability over the technology supply chain, given we're so reliant on international players and, and, and given the vulnerabilities of that supply chain right now? His answer was, a, a, again, very good wrap-up and also quite sobering. Well, there's basically only three manufacturers of semiconductors in the world today. That's TSMC, Samsung 
and Intel in the US. Um, building a semiconductor plant is at least a $20 billion investment and multiple years of building. Um, it's already dependent on years of IP creation and innovation, so it would be incredibly difficult to replicate that. In fact, the trend has been in the opposite direction. Uh, you know, over the last 20 years, the number of manufacturers of semiconductors has probably declined for more than double digits to the three we have today. Same with, by the way, 5G radio access equipment. When we launched 4G in the early 20, 2011, 2010, uh, there were 12 companies in the world from which you could buy 5G radio access telecommunications equipment. Today, there are four, four and a half, uh, of which only two are in the Western world. And so that is what we have seen, this is my point earlier, about access to critical technologies. I could go through the long stories as to how we've got to the the world that we're in today, but the reality is the supply chains have become incredibly concentrated. Where Australia does play a role, though, I believe is, whilst I don't really see us ever becoming a serious manufacturer, and both of those, where we do play a role is we have deep technical expertise and very close partnerships and very well regarded, both at the government level, but government should speak for itself, but also at the business level as well. If you take Telstra, as an example, you know, we're regarded as one of the top two or three telecommunications companies technologically in the world. So our partnerships with people like uh, Intel and Ericsson who are developing this technology puts us in a position of being able to influence their product roadmaps um, and how they build their capabilities and solutions, which, by the way, Australia does have particular requirements for, just given the nature of the topography and the demography of the country. So we need to continue to invest in that intellectual capital to be part of the global discussion, the global debate, so that we can increasingly make sure that we ensure our access to supply of those technologies. And TSMC is, by the way, the largest producer in the world. It's not just one of the biggest, it's, it's, it is the, the biggest. Yeah. As I mentioned, the Biden administration has announced a $52 billion investment in supporting semiconductor manufacturing. Most of that will probably end up in the hands of Intel. Um, they've announced their first um, fabrication plant build was going to be in Ohio and then and the next one is in Germany. Um, I'm not aware of any detailed discussions uh, in relation to Australia. Um, okay, that was Andy Penn, CEO of Telstra. His last major speech before he retires um, this coming Wednesday, I believe. Um, also of note, he was awarded the Communications Alliance 2022 Communications Ambassador of the Year Award uh, this week, um, and uh, that, that's following his 10-year career in telecommunications, the first few years of which he was the CFO of Tilster, and then he became the CEO. Of course, Vicky Brady um, is taking over as the CEO from September onwards. Now, moving on, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast... The head of enterprise and business at Optus, Gladys Berejiklian, um, spoke this week at the Daily Telegraph newspaper's so-called Bush Summit, which was held in regional New South Wales in Griffith. Now, um, the Optus was a major sponsor of this event, and it's clear that they they um, saw this summit as an opportunity to prosecute the argument that they're making against the network sharing agreement between Telstra and TPG in the Bush. Now, Optus is argument, as we've mentioned in this podcast before, is that this effectively reduces competition and promotes monopoly in regional areas. Um, 
Gladys Berejiklian riffed on that theme during a panel session uh, that was held uh, um, at the summit. And um, we'll play you an excerpt from what she had to say. You'll hear that she alludes to what a person called Grace said. That's a reference to Grace Brennan, who's the founder and CEO of Buy From The Bush. And she'd spoken earlier in the panel session about the issues that she had in getting basic broadband and mobile phone connectivity in her rural location. So anyway, let's hear what Gladys Berejiklian had to say. Look, I think in the last three decades, there's been enormous progress made, but as Grace highlighted, so much more to do. Mm. And it's not just about having a connection, but having it in a speedy way, having it reliable and having a resilient network. And that's why at Optus, we feel so strongly about not only maintaining and in the future increasing our uh, investment in the bush, but to make sure that competition is alive and right, that people have the options. They don't just have to rely on one operator. And that's why we encourage all of the regulators to keep that in mind, because competition raises standards for everybody. It means that everybody, if people have a choice, it means at least two, two players have to work really hard to get the customer and provide that level of satisfaction. And I think we all know that country towns and regions that thrive ordinarily have better connections than those that don't. Mm. I mean, COVID showed us you can work and live anywhere it doesn't matter where you're working from, mm. but if you don't have connectivity, that excludes you from our economy mm. and from participating. And that's why connectivity is so key and why we at Optus feel so strongly about maintaining that competitive environment so that those future investments can be made. And, um, and people like Grace, I mean, her campaign to encourage all of us to buy from the bush mm is just legendary mm. uh, and I suspect uh, a lot of people would have felt frustration if they weren't able to get online and make sure they were able to make those online purchases mm. uh, and so that's why we feel so strongly about maintaining that level of competition and just at Optus alone we invest about a one and a half billion dollars a year so over the last 30 years that's quite a substantial investment and we want that to continue but if decisions are made which reduce competition that obviously impacts our ability to get in those communities mm. and provide that choice mm. the choice might not be us but we need to provide that choice for people and that competition makes people work harder mm. to get that connectivity to areas that may not have it or even more importantly improve the level of connectivity so on paper Grace would say tick I've got connectivity, mm. but if it's not resilient in a natural disaster or reliable, uh, well then she's, she's, she's not able to continue what she needs to do. Well, I think what's really important is that in the last 30 years, um, since um, Optus has been around kind of as a challenger brand, we've been there saying we're an option and we'd like that to continue. So any decision such as a, the current proposal that's on the table, which limits the incentive for us or anybody else to go in there and make a difference is really bad news for the bush. So we don't want to see things go backward. We still acknowledge there's so much more work to do. Um, but for example, there's opportunities um, for us at Optus. We own and operate Australia's largest satellite network. Not everybody knows that. And there's opportunities for us to use that technology in the regions. But we have to make sure there's a level playing field so that we can be in there providing that choice and those options, especially for people in very remote areas. We know some regional communities are growing and flourishing. But I think what Grace is talking about are those communities that don't have that opportunity to grow in the same way, but people needing to travel and be productive whilst they're maintaining their daily 
lives, whether it's in the car, on the truck, or, or just moving around. And connectivity isn't just about where you mainly live and work from, but also getting to and from locations. So, you know, I just urge all of our regulators to really think about that moving forward. We want to continue to be a challenger brand in that space. We want to continue to make these investments but also be on the journey in making improvements. Nobody is going to sit back and say anyone in communications has done enough or that the job is done quite far from that. But now that we're seeing technology and innovation really change and improve, there's opportunities for us to reduce the gap even further mm. and to provide, and I think what is really critical isn't just the point of connectivity, but again, the point about resilience mm. and, and, um, and certainty. And even in a natural disaster, if one network goes down in a region, you want to make sure the other's up and running. And that's when it's all hands on deck. It doesn't matter who's there. It could be our towers that are down or somebody else's. But if you only have one player, it's going to reduce the ability for that level of resilience and cooperation. And, and I can't stress that point enough. But I fully acknowledge there's more work to do. But the hope on the horizon is that technology is making things easier and faster. Mm -hmm. And we should encourage that further competition. And there's other players coming in. I mean, MBN is meant people can, others who don't have that big network that, that us and others have. Uh, you know, there are other players coming into the marketplace, which is a good thing. Um, but any hardcore investment in the regions should be encouraged, not discouraged. And mm. that's our strong message. Just create a competitive uh, playing field, because when you only have one operator, it it makes it, it reduces standards across the board. But when you're forced to kind of fight for the customer, when you're forced to demonstrate what you have, you know, um, it actually raises standards across the board, and we feel very strongly about that. But I think all of us have seen and experienced, um, uh, you know, cases when, when unfortunately natural disasters or other incidents have meant the network's been considerably compromised, and that's when people need to be connected most of all. And that resilience, in addition to just the day-to-day -day improvement in connectivity, is something we should all think about. That's Gladys Berejiklian, the Head of Business and Enterprise at Optus, um, talking about uh, what Optus sees as the need for a more um, conducive playing field for investment in the bush, um, so as to ensure that Telstra and, and potentially TPG, if they share their networks, don't have an effective monopoly there. Now, it's worth pointing out, of course, that Telstra and TPG don't agree with that line of argument. Um, one thing we can say for sure is that this argument will keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. It's, it's August, as I say this, and the ACCC flagged uh, earlier this week that they won't be making a final decision on this until December. Well, on that note, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you very much for joining us on Comms Day Live this week. Bye.